0: have you opened your Bible to second Timothy chapter one. And I want to try to answer the question. It's a generic question of what do we do now? Another year is gone. It has passed quickly. And I think at the beginning of every new year, I remind myself of how far removed we are now from the phenomenon called Y2K. Do you remember that? Does it seem like that's been 22 years ago? It really doesn't, does it? We thought the world was going to come to an end. Every computer was going to crash. And yet, 22 years later, here we are. But we are living in a world that is anti-Christ, opposed to the teachings of Christ, opposed to the word of God. Having been turned over by God to their own lusts. We find so much familiarity as we read through Romans chapter 1. It seems like Paul wrote that in definition of the culture in which we live, doesn't it? But we have great instruction. And we do well to heed it this morning. I want to read a few verses here out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 13. 14, sorry, verses 8 through 14. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded That he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you. Keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. I want you to notice before I pray. The two committings that are found in this passage. The first. In verse 12, we have committed something to him, which he will keep until the day. And then in verse 14, he has committed something to us. And the expectation is the same, that we keep with great help by the Holy Spirit, though it's not Implicitly, though it's not explicitly stated, it's certainly implied that we would keep it until that day as well. Let me pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we've come to your word. We ask you to open it to our understanding. We ask you to give us a spiritual eye to see it and a spiritual ear to hear it, that it would be spiritual food for us, that we would be greatly encouraged, and that we would come under conviction of any sin in our life that is not pleasing unto you. We ask you to do that work of salvation among us. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Living in a world that is increasingly opposed to the things of God, and I guess I need to qualify those terms because many would say that the place in which they live has always been opposed to the things of God, and that's true even here. But I remember the days of my childhood when even Wednesday evenings would completely shut down. Sundays certainly were distinct and different. Any vestige of gospel influence, even on the culture of Northeast Texas, right here, square in the Bible Belt, has vanished, it's dissipated. Gone, And I think it's right for us to see that what we experience on a daily basis, and increasingly so, is a result of something that we are partially to blame for. We are experiencing the results of what happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ is softened. When it's made more palatable, and what I mean by that is when it's made easier to hear, and perhaps easier to take, or even worse, easier to believe. When the gospel is made more, quote, relevant, and isn't that the buzzword of the last several decades? Everything needs to be relevant. And just let me remind you, we need not attempt to make the gospel relevant. The gospel is relevant to those who find themselves acutely aware of their sinfulness before God. We need not dress it up and make it look like anything other than it is. We're experiencing the results of our speech perhaps being loving but void of gospel truth. Remember, we have to keep those things married together. We cannot divorce them. We have to speak the truth in love. But notice those two words in close connection, truth and love. It's not loving to speak falsely to someone. We're also experiencing what, what happens when we speak these words in love but void of truth. The gospel by its very nature is not seeker friendly. You realize that, don't you? The gospel, by its very nature, confronts sinners and calls them to die to self, to turn to God, to repent of their sins. And it results in a glorious conversion. It results in a believer now having the Spirit of God living and dwelling within them, desiring to be obedient, desiring to live a life under his glory what we need is not newer or better methods but what we need is a a fresh resolve to do exactly what paul has called us to do what he's called timothy to do and therefore us in verse 13 to hold fast to the pattern of sound words so that's really the question that's set before me and set before you Will we hold fast to the pattern of sound words? The word sound here means wholesome, hygienic, healthy. Our response to these words is to hold them, not to shy away from them. And to do so in a way that the Spirit of God will bless our efforts. But I want to see this verse in its larger context, so we're going to back up to the eighth verse where we began reading. And I'll remind you that this is the last letter that Paul would write. The familiar words that we hear so often as we stand beside the grave of a loved one. Out of the fourth chapter where Paul says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Those verses we hear so often. And these verses that we read this morning. Come just before that great declaration or statement of Paul. What we are doing here as we read 2 Timothy. We are reaping the benefit of his vast experience as an apostle. Everything that we read in the book of Acts. Acts. Everything that we read in other letters that he has written, all of his experience seems to be summed up in this last letter that he would write as a personal letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. History tells us to listen closely to the to the closing or even the dying words of godly men and women. And so we move forward with that application here this morning. We are to listen very closely to these words. Because, first of all, they are the word of God for us. But also there is much experience and fruit in the life of Paul here that he is giving to us. What would he have his young son in the faith to do? Timothy now has been charged with being an elder or a pastor in the church of, of Ephesus. Ephesus. Whether or not we agree, some have sketched a character of Timothy and in sketching that character from the things that Paul says to him in the scriptures. We come away from that, first of all, knowing he's young, knowing that he may be somewhat timid and knowing that he may be somewhat physically unwell. So you put all of those things together. Any one of them, there are great temptations, but put all of them together together. There would be great temptations for this young, possibly physically weak, timid man. But Paul gives him great instruction, and we see that as being given to us this morning. I'm not denying the fact this is a personal letter written from Paul to Timothy, but what I am affirming is that the Spirit of God has taken this word, and he is making application of it even to us this morning. So... What Paul would have Timothy do is the same thing that Paul, or more importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ, would have us do. He would have us hold fast to these sound words that we have been given. What do we do when we're confronted with with certain aspects of culture or decisions or lifestyles or thinking or beliefs, whatever, what do we do when we are confronted with those things that go against clear teaching of Scripture? Well, the answer according to this and other places in Scripture is that we will hold fast to what we've been given. The temptation is strong to let slide a few things. The temptation is strong to soften a few words. But yeah, we do that ultimately to the dishonor of the Lord Jesus and diminish the glory that we give him and to the detriment of those that hear us and listen. A real survey of the last several decades will reveal nothing's been furthered in Christianity by the softening of the gospel. But great harm has come to individuals churches in the unbelieving world because of an unwillingness to stand firm, to contend earnestly, and to hold fast the pattern of sound word. So go back with me to verse eight. And I want us to first see I've got three points here because that's just that's just the way Baptist preachers preach, right? Three points. So I want to go back to point number one and that is in answer to the question what do we do How do we move on? Well, the first is that we glory in the gospel. And I've stated that positively, even though Paul states it negatively in verse eight, when he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. So rather than being ashamed, talk more about what that word means here in just a bit. Rather than be ashamed, we are to the opposite of that glory in the testimony of Christ and the testimony of Paul and the writings that he has left us inspired of the Spirit. When we get over to verse 10, we're told there that Christ's appearing has done something. Specifically, it has made known what was concealed under type and shadow in the Old Covenant, now in the New, Christ's coming in the flesh has brought light, brought something to light. And as we're thinking about the testimony of Christ that Paul is referring to here, to here in verse 8, I want you to have in mind that Christ's coming testified to certain things. And I'm speaking of Christ, the necessity of Christ's coming in the flesh. The necessity that God would conceive in the womb of a virgin, his own son. Wrap him in flesh. All of this necessary and being witnessed by Christ's coming. First of all, that is a testimony to mankind's inability to find a remedy for the condition in which he found himself in. Having been created perfect, placed in a place of perfection given simple commands, Adam, our head, fell into sin and was unable to bring any remedy to that situation. That's what the testimony of Christ, his coming is testifying, bearing witness to the fact that we were in a state, an incurable state. And had God not intervened, We would still be in that incurable state. But the coming of Christ and the testimony of Christ also bears witness to the perfect justice of God. The perfect justice of God. Romans chapter 3, he is just, but he is also the justifier of the one who would have faith in Christ Jesus. His coming also bears witness to the fact that he alone is the perfect justice. Sin-bearing Savior. There is no other. So this in part. Certainly not in whole. But in part is what Paul is referring to. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Nor of me, his prisoner. Now what does it mean to be ashamed? Very often we'll hear these verses. And think about these verses. As being embarrassed of the gospel. or, Or shying away from a conversation. That is opened up to you. And I'm not denying that that's what this word means in part, but to look more closely at what Paul says here in not being ashamed, I think it's helpful to state it this way. To be ashamed of the gospel is to avoid at all costs being so closely associated with it that it costs you something. That's what it means to be ashamed. And by carrying that over, Paul would then add, nor be ashamed of me, his Prisoner. Timothy here being encouraged not to count the friendship that he had with Paul, the fellowship that he had with Paul, as something to avoid, but something to glory in. We're called to count the cost, not for our own belief, but for what we call others to believe as well. Paul goes so far as to ask or to instruct Timothy to share with him in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. You know, as a Christian, and please understand the way I'm saying this to you. I realize we are to be blameless. That doesn't mean accusations won't come. That just means accusations shouldn't stick, right? But some accusations should stick. What I mean by that is when someone refers to you as you're one of those who believe, and then something biblical, that accusation should stick, and it's and it's one that I want to stick to me and to you. If someone were to say you're one of those people who believe that mankind is depraved and not inherently naturally good, I'll wear that badge. Because the scripture tells me that's the truth. I'm not saying that all mankind acts out that depravity to the same level. Thankfully, there are some very good morally upstanding people who have a depraved nature. And are not right in standing before God. So if someone were to declare that of you or me or or. If someone were to say you're a part of that church that believes these things, or you're a part of that group of people that that believes in the sovereignty of God, His absolute rule and reign over the affairs of men, let that let that stick and wear it, not in pride, in the bad sense, but in a sense that you are. Showing yourself to be faithful to the light God has given you. You realize that's, that's the criterion of your judgment and mine. What did we do with the light God shed on the scriptures for us? Do we live in light of it? If we don't, then we're falling prey to what Paul says here. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. But there is great hope embedded in this verse When he calls Timothy and us to share in the sufferings of the gospel, he says, according to the power of God. So as certain things and accusations are leveled against you or leveled against us, so long as they correspond in accord with scripture, we receive those things as they are. But knowing that we have great help. In bearing these things, I want to read you something that Paul would also write to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading somewhere around verse 19. Because he says the same things. He's talking to those that have been, those who have experienced the grace of God. And he describes them in verse 18 as having the eyes of your understanding enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, make the correlation between what Paul says there and what he's saying to Timothy and us here. He's saying that the same power that raised Christ from the grave is at work in you who believe. Do you believe that? We would say rightly that the greatest expression of power, the power of God, is to raise Christ from the grave. Even though we confess that Jesus said of himself, I'll lay down my life and I will take it up again. We understand that the Godhead is at work and responsible for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But to see what Paul says, the power of God that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us who believe. So any insufficiency. Any feeling, be careful with your feelings, any feelings that you are unable to do what God has called you to do is completely and utterly false. It is a lie Of the devil, what we are to proceed with is a total reliance upon the help of the Spirit of God and the exertion of the power in us, that very same power that raised Christ from the grave. You have great help. And you might say, Well, I am very prone to be ashamed. You have great help in not being ashamed. The power of God at work in you and in me. The second point is not only that we are to glory in the gospel, and I I want to be repetitive here, but for a reason. The second point is that we are to glory in the biblical gospel, to sharpen the point just a bit, to put a fine point on what Paul is saying, because I, I realize very often the word or the term gospel gets thrown around. Very many people would say they believe the gospel. But when you start to put the fine point on the spear of the gospel, people begin to draw back. People begin to shy away. And so I'm thankful that here Paul puts the point on the spear. Not only does he mention the testimony of the Lord and the testimony that he himself Would bear, but he begins to give us the real finer points of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 9, who has saved us. Notice he's using the past tense. It's true, we have been saved, we are being saved. Paul is referring to this as though it's already as good as finally and fully accomplished when he says. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. The Spirit of God does not leave us wondering as to what Paul is referring to when he begins to use these terms gospel or good news. And notice also that he equates the calling, even the call of God to you and I, is holy. A holy calling. Some people would see that as being called into some holy vocation. I see it as the effectual call of the gospel given to holy. corresponds to the holiness of God. He is calling you into his own holiness. But even as we're looking at the finer points of the gospel, notice the glaring words of Paul, not according to our works. Let me encourage you apply that statement of Paul to its full end. Don't stop short of applying what Paul says when you were thinking about the glories of the gospel. And we when we are beginning to peel back, even though small layers of what grace means And what the grace of God having been extended to us is referring to, notice that we are to take this phrase, not according to our works, and run as far as we can, trumpeting the glory of it. Obviously, we would say that no works of our own, good works, merit the call of God. That's the obvious thing, right? But also, we need to understand this. The call of God is not a response to some good thing that you had ever done or would have ever done. Let me say it again. The call of God is not a response to some good thing you have done or ever would do, not of works, past, present, or future. See, when we begin to put this point on the spear, some people draw back. Some want to take credit somewhere for something. Contrary to popular opinion, the scripture never presents the foreknowledge of God as his looking down through the corridor of time and seeing the good work of faith and belief that you would produce. It's not what these verses say. The scriptures do it at several places, affirm, before time began. According to his own purpose, he purposed to do these things for you and to do them in free, unmerited grace and favor. That's the scandal of grace, isn't it? Surely we could do something, past, present, or future. The scripture says, absolutely not. You did nothing, past, present, or future. The call of God is not a response to some good thing you have done or are doing presently or will do. Paul would say in Ephesians 2, at the end of those verses where we gather that it is by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves, not of works. At the end of that paragraph, he says, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then when we understand The gospel in terms of this type of grace. That the call of God has come in spite of what we have done. Or in spite of what we would never have done. Then grace becomes grace. It's not according to our works. Well then what is it according to? Don't you love the way Paul. Sometimes you can trace his. His steps, he knows there are questions. He knows that there are, are, are minds. That's why we have to love the book of Romans, where there is that series of questions that he then gives answer to. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's a logical conclusion of an unsanctified mind in response to the grace of the gospel. And then he obliterates it, doesn't he? It's the same thing he's doing here. According to our, according to his own Purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. In the eternal counsels of God, before time began, Paul says the same thing in the first chapter of Ephesians. Before time began in the eternal counsels of God, a covenant between Father and Son that the Son would come And be dispatched on this mission of mercy, grace, and redemption. The promises were made, foreshadowed in the Old Testament to Adam, Eve, Abraham, Noah. All of those great promises of God. And yet they all find their fulfillment in Christ at his appearing. That is what Paul says here but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we do rightly when we read that phrase and, and, and apply it to the incarnation of Jesus. The word appearing here is epiphany, has now been revealed by the epiphany of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The fact that God wrapped him in flesh and sent him to this earth and the fact that Christ willingly came, under no coercion, not considering it robbery to be equal with God, all that he had known of equality with the Father throughout eternity past, he willingly, for a time or for a season, set that aside. Greatly condescending and acting in humility. That's why Paul would, at the end of that, say, Have the mind of Christ. There's no room for pride or arrogance in the heart. In the life of a believer. But notice what he says happened. When Christ came. The appearing of our Savior. Who has abolished. Death. And brought life. And immortality. To light. Through the gospel. Life and death mentioned here as having been brought to light through the gospel. We'll treat them in the same order that Paul does here. First, death. He says, by Christ's coming, death has been abolished. It's not referring to a bodily, physical death. Every one of us given enough time and barring the Lord's return, we will experience a physical, bodily death. It is indeed the last enemy. The abolishment of death in these verses, though not applied to a physical death, certainly applies to a spiritual or a second death in the lake of fire or Gehenna or hell. Christ's coming and the work that he accomplished in coming has abolished death and brought life, life eternal, and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, what was kept confined under shadows and prefigurements, typified under the old covenant when Christ came, The light began to shine. And when the light shines in a dark place, what happens? Things are uncovered. Secrets made known. The grace of God on full display. Paul says of this gospel, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded when you think of the word persuaded here, it's better read convinced. That's not often the way we use the word persuaded, but it's the intention of Paul. I am convinced that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So the question has to be asked Paul, what did you commit to him? I think Paul would say, I, I committed my life, I've committed my soul. I've committed my eternity. I've committed my hope. I have committed all that I am to him. And I am firmly persuaded and convinced he is able to keep what I have committed to him. That's the great hope that we have. Right. Jesus said no one is going to snatch us out of the father's hand. He will keep us to the end and all glory and praise to God for that truth. Even in those places in scripture where we are called Like Jude writes, keep yourselves in the love of God. He then quickly attaches to that. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. We have a responsibility. Sure. But we also are under a great, the great keeping power of God. Peter would say the same thing. This salvation has been kept for us, reserved in heaven His first epistle and first chapter. Now we really get to the point of why we look at these verses and that's verse 13. Again, trying to give answer to the question, what do we do? What do we do? Parents, is there any hope for your children being reared in such an ungodly society? Do you have any hope for your grandchildren if the Lord tarries? What pattern will you set for them? What what course of action will you point them to and say, children, do this until the Lord returns? Well, we're told in very certain terms in verse thirteen. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me. Please note that the call here is to retain, not reinvent. The call is to keep what has been given, not make stuff up as we go. The call is to move forward with settled conviction, to be those who are propagating the truth, contending earnestly for it, Realizing that if we lose it, if we lose the truth, and I'm not saying that the truth will ultimately be lost, but what we need to realize is there's only one Martin Luther in history, right? They don't Martin Luther's don't grow on trees. I read that once and it's kind of stuck in my mind. There are not many who are so greatly used to recover the purity of the gospel. We're to hold it fast and contend for it. We're called to be heralds of it, not inventors. The pattern, Paul says, hold fast the pattern. The word here refers to a rough draft or to a sketch. And I think the meaning behind that is every approach to ministry Every word that is said, every sermon, every study, every thought even that we would have in our minds must be laying over the sketch of the pattern of sound words to see if there is any accordance at all, to see if there is any way that they line up, to use the term that we so often use were to be Berean. Why were they more noble minded? Because they searched the scriptures to see whether or not what they heard was really in accordance to the truth. pattern of sound words. Again, make note that Paul uses this word, which refers to wholesome and healthy and in practice, hygienic, clean. The pattern of sound words. Paul says to Timothy, you've heard them from me. And then he tells Timothy in what Two, or two ways that he is to hold this pattern of sound words he says in faith and love certainly here faith referring to a right attitude of confidence toward God to accomplish his purposes through his word that is the normal means we call we call it a means of grace God is using his word to accomplish his purpose Purposes in us individually as a church and in the world as a whole. So we move forward holding fast the pattern of sound words in faith in Christ that he will continue to use his word in this way. It's a very sad commentary on the state of much of the contemporary church that the plain public reading of the scriptures has been set aside and the play attempt to preach from them have been set aside in favor of far lesser things. Play acting. This is this is how silly the church has become in many places. Set aside preaching. And put on a skit. A play. Dance if you must. Draw a picture. Some form of art. And you may listen to that and say, well, how, how silly. But let me tell you that happens in more places than you know. More places than we would like to admit. And it happens very close to home. But Paul says not only in faith, he says in love. Love. And I think he's referring to here a right attitude of kindness and compassion towards unbelievers. But even more than that, a right attitude of kindness and compassion towards poorly taught and immature believers. When we defend God's word in a self-righteous, unloving spirit, the resulting controversy and opposition not caused wholly by the offense of the truth, but rests in our handling of it. Those words, John MacArthur's not mine. But how true. When we defend in a self-righteous, unloving spirit, the controversy that results is often not stemming from the word, but our attitude. How we say what we say matters greatly. And we have great example in the scriptures for that. Think of the kindness, the compassion, and the gentleness that Jesus spoke to those caught in sin. The woman caught in adultery. Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? They have fled. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And we rightly see that as one way Jesus dealt with sinners. Towards the self-righteous Pharisees, on the other hand, what did he do? Very openly and boldly and loudly called them hypocrites. Whitewashed tombs. They're inwardly full of dead men's bones. But as... Believers, we are to deal with one another and the unbelieving, in a kind compassion. I, I love this word. We don't use it much anymore, but we are to be winsome. You might have heard the trite saying, be winsome to winsome, right? But there is some truth in that. There is some truth in that. We can make the truth... Attractive by our loving declaring of it. God help us to balance that rightly. Many times well-intentioned believers knock so much hardness off the truth that what they're saying is no longer true. Paul says this keep hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard in faith and love that good thing which was committed to you keep. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the good thing that was committed to us, if we rewind it back into verses eight and following, certainly would refer to the testimony of our Lord, the gospel. That's the good thing that has been committed to our trust. It is the deposit that has been made into our safekeeping. And then again, I point your attention to these two commitments or entrustings, maybe a better word. Paul said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded he is able to keep what I have entrusted to him. But then to the same degree, he is calling Timothy and thereby us. To keep that good thing which has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. May I ask you a a frank question? How secure is the deposit of truth in your keeping? How secure is the deposit of gospel truth in your hands and in mine? I'm thankful for the truth of the 12th verse that what's been entrusted to him is kept. He never loses. Paul words it so wonderfully until that day. That day. Lord, help us to be faithful and true until that day. To hold fast to the pattern of sound words, even when everything around us, around us calls us to something different. I can think of no greater accusation personally or for us as a church than for someone to label us as those who are believing in a seemingly antiquated book and not improving our methods at all. We are very much stuck in the past. (laughs) Holding fast. God help us. Amen, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words and the admonition of them Lord help us to be true to them we're thankful for the glories of the gospel that have been unfolded in these few short verses our salvation our calling according to your purpose according to your grace given in Christ his coming has abolished death And brought to light eternal life. We're thankful for the pattern of sound words. Lord help us to keep them. Help us to individually keep. Help us corporately. To hold one another to this account. To do so in faith. Faith in Christ and faith that you will continue to work in these means, but also in love. Love for those to whom we minister and for one another. Lord, let us never stray from the path. Let us never become inventors of new things. Let us never lose confidence in this means of grace. Let us never become so wise that we become fools. Help us to stick to the scriptures as our only rule of life. Help us to contend earnestly for the faith. Help us to herald the gospel at every every turn and to do so with great help. Oh God, would you help us in these days to be faithful. Help us in our endeavor to raise the next generations in your fear. To show our children and grandchildren and any children that come in close contact with us. That there is a God and he's holy. And that he has made a way of salvation. That he is loving, merciful, but also just. will not overlook transgression. Father, save the lost. Do a work in our midst. Quicken us, revive us unto your own glory and do so according to your word and mercy. We ask it because it accords with what we see in the scriptures. It accords with the expectation that you have given us. Father, help us Not to be a timid and shy people, ashamed to be associated with this gospel of life. Give us courage. Give us zeal. Forgive our coldness, lukewarmness, and unconcern for those around us. We're thankful for Jesus, thankful for this season when we gladly give attention to his condescension and humility. So Lord, help us to be balanced. Help us to, to trumpet his life, his ministry, especially his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension. I ask for your blessings upon this day and for these who are gathered here that your favor would rest upon them would rest upon us all and that you would make known in greater ways and detail the truth and help us to live by it. Amen.